0: Amartya and I am a biologist. I'm passionate about all things, wildlife and evolution. I did my bachelor's at St. Xavier's College in Bombay in India, and I just recently finished a master's in research from University College, London, where I work on frog eyes. Hi, I'm Sumit Singh, and I study commerce and economics at Mumbai
1: University. Amartya and I have been friends for years four years now
0: and both of us have a big interest in cool things we love talking about anything interesting and especially the natural world especially wildlife
1: oh yeah i remember our first conversation was about birds and uh, you took me birding for the first time in my life so we decided to take our conversations and ideas to scientists of southeast asian origin people who work in our side of the world
0: When I first told Sumedh about what I was doing, it seemed really interesting to him. And that's one of the reasons why our conversations are so great, because we're from different fields and we bring different perspectives on things. There are so many different people in this country and in South Asia who are working on extremely interesting things. And Sumedh and I together, through our very different perspectives, are going to explore their work, and provide a platform to tell people about the very interesting things that they're doing. Sounds good. With that, we welcome you to the first episode of the Jungly podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Deepak Veerappan from the Natural History Museum in London. Deepak is a herpetologist, which means that he studies reptiles. A lot of his work has been in India, and in particular, the Western Ghats, a beautiful mountain range along the southern west coast of the country. Deepak specializes in taxonomy, which is a technical term for the study of naming, defining and classifying groups of biological organisms. Deepak has described a staggering 28 species through his career, mostly from India. So get ready as we chat about our scaly friends from snakes to turtles and tortoises, to close encounters with tigers and a behind the scenes look at life in the field and in the dusty drawers of museums with Dr. Deepak Veerappan. Hi. Hi, Dr. Hi, Deepak. How How are are you? you? Good morning. So nice to see you. I'm glad we were finally able to do this.
2: Yeah, I'm glad too.
0: Welcome to our podcast. This is the first episode. Yeah. I'm sure you have lots of very interesting stories to tell us. Okay. So uh, you're a herpetologist. And why reptiles? Was it a passion you always had? Or did you just enjoy nature and field work and gradually get into the field?
2: So to begin with, I started catching snakes when I was really young. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was three, is what my mom says. But uh, that was just like, there were snakes in the area. So I (laughs) had a chance to catch them like any other moving thing. (laughs) So, But it was not until my teens, uh, I really wanted to study them. Because everyone in the family was afraid of them. But they did not have a good reason to do so. Uh, like, because most of the snakes we got in the area was like keelbacks and non-venomous okay. snakes. Okay. And so, I was very intrigued to learn about reptiles at a young age. This was the case with my friends as well. So, they were also like really uh, interested. But they didn't want to know. Like, because they innately think that they are venomous and okay. they are harmful. Okay. You know? So... That's one of the reasons. Uh, and then I got uh, support from my family and friends, so it became a passion. So I also have to thank the retired Professor S.K. Dotter. So he organized some six or seven school in herpetology between 2006 and 2012. And that really set uh, my career. Like uh, I attended most of it as a student at the beginning. Okay. And at later stages, I became a resource person. Which shaped yeah. my current understanding in Indian herpetology. Yeah,
0: wow, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. When you were just three years old, was when you were yeah. first catching snakes. And um, so, where was this exactly? Where did you grow up?
2: So I grew up in. I'm from Chennai. I grew up in Chennai. This was near. Uh, what is the central? The Coimbad, that's where the central bus stand is in Chennai now. Okay. Yeah, and, okay. uh, although now it's like really well developed, in the past it used to be, uh, little bit of open areas and forested, a lot of wetlands. And now they're mm. all closed and they're full of buildings, but
0: yeah, it, yeah. I'm sure there are much less snakes there now than there yeah. used to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I'm sure, uh, your mom must have been pretty terrified. That's true. Yeah. They were, they
2: were all <laughs> terrified. And I have this. <laughs> really peculiar interest on reptiles and creepy crawlers. Okay,
1: so yeah, it was um, pretty interesting to see uh, that it was something that you've always had a connection to um, from the start. So, like, whenever you go out to social settings and stuff like that, whenever you talk about your uh, profession, do people have a particular reaction or assumption that, "Wow, this guy! Like, oh my god, this guy works with snakes." I remember when I met a herpetologist the first time, and we talked about his, you know, work with snakes. It seemed for me, who's not in the field, very intense stuff.
2: Um, okay, so herpetology, as a broad subject area, is really super interesting. But then for non-scientists also, yes, it's a unique thing. But if you look at it in an evolutionary perspective, human okay. beings, like other apes, have innate fear. Or curiosity towards snakes because yes. they were our predators, and uh, so yeah. so it's it's there innately, and pe- many people are fascinated. Many are curious. Some people are like really scared and they don't want to know at all. Yes, but then yes. I think it's a fifty-fifty. There are a lot of people who want to know about reptiles. So, and then okay. I love talking about reptiles and my field story. So it it works great when I in a in a social conversation.
1: Yeah, I can imagine the perception is that they're very uh, dangerous creatures and I think you really hit the nail on the head because when I think snakes, it's like a king cobra and you know, somebody, you know, venomous, angry,
2: slithering around and all of that. <laughs> yeah, but I also have to point out that it's also the media over the years, yes. they've yes. they put so much fear in people, which has, yeah, I think amplified that fear.
0: Uh, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure certain Hollywood movies have something to do with this, definitely. Yeah. And Bollywood. Absolutely. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah. The worst. So you have had snake catching experience pretty much your entire lifetime then. How does how does catching snakes really work? Of course we should definitely say to our audience that no one should be catching snakes. We should just be appreciating them from a distance. But to research them, I'm sure you must have to catch them. So how does that work?
2: Um, so you not always have to catch them, depending mm-hmm. on your study question. So in okay. case you're doing behavioral studies on an aquatic snake, you're going to sit on the side of the pond and watch them most of the time. Definitely. But um, it, like, if you're talking about general reptiles, it depends on which group, like turtles or snakes or lizards. But then they have one thing in common being ectotherms they are more active during specific time of the day or yeah. specific time okay. of the year okay. and uh, or like particularly season so you you can you I usually target those times and go there and try to study them so catching snakes and lizards needs a little bit of running around and teammates in the field okay. easier to catch most of the diurnal species which are often lying there sleeping like okay. on a shirt. So yeah, lights can be really useful to get the shine of the animal and then you can get eye shine. You can really rely on eye shine while spotting uh, animals at night. Yeah,
0: definitely.
2: Yeah, That's
1: very interesting. One would assume that snakes with their camouflage and all that would be tougher to spot at night. Could you clarify a little bit more when you go uh, during night? So you actually search them out with torches? Yeah. And you, you use the word, the
2: reflection of their eyes. So for, uh, yeah, for large snakes, you can definitely get a reflection of the eye. For most of the frogs, okay. all the frogs, actually, most of the frogs, I guess you get uh, eye shine. Geckos, also you get eye shine. They have a slightly reddish eye shine, but okay. with practice, you can spot them more. Snakes, on the other hand, uh, often diana snakes, they are sleeping high up in the branch. So if okay. you have shining spots, The uh, ventral side of the scales are much more shinier. When you splash the torch, you get a good grip.
1: Okay. Is there a a particular species or group that are more difficult to spot or catch? More difficult to spot? Or generally in the field, whenever you're in the field, it's, for example, if it's a certain uh, species, it'll be tough to uh, observe or Get a hold of them for whatever work you might be doing at the time.
2: Okay, so some of the species in the Western Ghats, particularly, are really difficult to find. So coral snakes, for example, okay, uh, there are not many records because of their habit. They are often slithering under leaf litter, and very rarely they get out. So it's okay. much more difficult to spot. But Lately, after social media uh, coming up, like you could see so many uh, snakes or coral snake pictures in the media. Okay. And it's probably because things have opened up. There's a lot more habitat degradation and animals are oh, don't okay. Like they have to come out in okay. open before they go into a hidden space. So that's for snakes. Uh, for turtles, so I studied this really interesting turtle in the Western Ghats called the cane turtle. And those turtles, are they look, they can fit in your palm, a small species, and they almost look like a leaf on a forest floor because they have a lot of uh, algal formation and lichen and all. Wow. So it's really, really difficult to spot them. So that, the first individual, for me, it took six months to spot the first individual. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah some of the species can be really that
0: They uh, must testing. have very
1: impressive camouflage if it took you six months, wow. Yeah. yeah.
0: So coming out from that, so six months to find a turtle is definitely extremely physically and mentally challenging. I'm sure you were in an inac- inaccessible forest at the time. So uh, what would you say have been some of the most difficult conditions that you've had to deal with while you're on the field?
2: Difficult condition, so this field work particularly, now I think you get network in most of the areas. So at that time, so we had to climb a small peak in order to get a little bit of network. So Uh we used to do that once in a week to go call home. Uh, So connectivity was a problem earlier, but I don't think that's the case now. But electricity still might be a problem in many places because there's only one line connecting from the plains to the hills. And if something happens to that line and then you don't have network for okay. two days, three days, okay. there's no, there's no, uh, electricity for two, three days. So which is not a big problem yeah. if you are doing a basic study where you don't need things to be charged. For right. example, if it's a behavioral study, you just have your Binax, you walk out, take data, come back to okay. school. But <laughs> if it is like I was doing a telemetry study. So. I constantly had to have extra batteries, to rechargeable batteries and also that was slightly tricky to handle. But yeah, over the years of experience, uh, what I would say is one of the places I've worked the Amalai Hills is one of the toughest place to work, mainly because not just this difficulties in technology, mm-hmm. but it's also an area with a lot of large mammals. And okay. uh, we used to sample in late evenings for tortoises because the tortoise was active in the evenings hmm. and uh, i often went out with two field assistants because there's one guy who's constantly on a lookout for large mammals and okay. the other two are searching for uh, turtles so that was slightly difficult but it, it's not as difficult as going on an expedition without uh, with just your supplies for weeks together uh, okay. but yeah okay what large mammals would they be
1: around the hills, and why would you, um, why would you need to be on a lookout for them?
2: So in uh, Anomalize, you do have elephants, you have tigers, oh you oh have wow.
1: leopards, the
2: you have is the largest bears, and you boy have a cow
1: in the world. They're taller than Michael Jordan yeah. and can weigh more than a ton. Okay. So,
0: okay. All of tiger. those are extremely dangerous when you're alone in the forest at
2: night. Yeah, yeah. So, but then tigers, I've seen only three or four times in that landscape on food. But they often, when you're walking in the forest, like my field assistant who are like really experienced, they'll say like, oh, it was right here, few minutes ago wow. and it left. So they are wow. very elusive animals in the Western Ghats at least. They would, you won't feel that they were there. But gore and elephants, they'll often be right on the path. And evening time is cooler, so they are more active at that time foraging or whatever. So... If you bump into them by mistake yeah, then yeah.
1: And I'm sure they won't be scared of any other any animal they encounter because of
2: their size. No. Um, Some of the elephant troops, like it, okay. it changes. I'm not an elephant expert, but certain parts where there is less human interference in the Western okay. parts where I work. My assistant used to tell, Yeah, they are much more calmer, so they know that we are going and they'll move away. Okay. They have a better smooth.
1: That's really in- That's really interesting.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the nature of your study with the tortoise that you were hunting down in the the Malay Hills?
2: Uh, So so this was a project which was funded by the Ministry at that time and uh, from Wildlife Institute of India. So the objective was to go find out anything about the ecology of the species because they were endemic to the mountains Mm -hmm. and it was 2006. And we did we hardly knew anything about these species. We don't know about their home range, movement pattern, like what are they eating. We we got some information, but these are bits and pieces. But it's it's a endemic species and there are charismatic species. One of them is protected in Schedule One of the Wildlife ah. Protected Act. So we don't know nothing about them. So the project came up, so I was a researcher at that time. Radio telemetry. That's going to be really useful to get day-to-day behavior. So that's uh, that's that's to briefly tell a four-year-old study. But I see.
0: So telemetry would involve tagging them and
2: then yeah, essentially so essentially finding
0: them. Right? Yeah,
2: yeah, and yeah. based on the data you collect. Uh, so the good thing is telemetry. You often, as I said, it took six months for me to find the first turtle, but after we tagged three of them. Uh, we found 28 more individuals because we were tracking them every day in that area. Okay. So, you know, they were interacting or they were on proximity to another turtle. So like we were going there physically every day, but it was easier with radio telemetry. So when
1: you say six months to find a turtle, that's pretty interesting. And when you say that, hey, after we tagged a few, we found more and more at a faster rate so is this something that usually happens in studies or you know when you're finding a new or trying to research a species or is this just a pattern that might happen might not happen
2: so largely it will depend on the species uh, and, okay. uh, like how uh, densely populated they are for example if you're tracking predators which have a large home range and okay. they might not overlap in home ranges and so on so then you there is a chance you you might not find that many, but it was for a species which is more abundant, but then we don't know anything about them, and only if you put the telemetry then you get this. More individuals then, yeah. So it it varies case by case. Okay, okay.
0: Alright, so uh, large mammals were definitely a scare when you were doing field work, but I'm sure you might have had some scary experiences with snake bite as well. Or something that your fellow herpetologists in the
2: field might have experienced at some point of time? Uh, that's, yeah, it's that. I used to rescue and catch venomous snakes at the later wow. stages and after I moved out from Chennai to my masters, mm-hmm. uh, crates and cobras particularly. Okay. But then now if I was in the same position, I, I would try to avoid catching highly venomous snakes unless it is absolutely necessary like it. It's like in somebody's house and they're going to kill it or something okay. like that. And I would still wouldn't do it if I don't have the proper gear to mm-hmm. handle them. Okay. Because okay. a lot of people who mishandle or they, they don't go with right equipment. So <laughs> it, yes, there were some friends uh, who got bitten while I was in field. Oh no. Yeah. They had a really tough time, 15 days in hospitals and it's not cheap to get antivenom and, all, and so on. It's better to avoid getting bitten and better to avoid handling venomous snakes. But if you are in a position and if you do want to do it as a service and if there are many venomous snakes, so it's best to get some guidance from experienced snake handlers or rescuers in the country. And there are a few who have been trained That's for nice. that. They barely handle the snake. They just have the right equipments and they know how to relocate them from one place to another.
0: So I guess it is just best to appreciate snakes. From a distance it can be difficult for some species to tell apart venomous ones from non venomous ones as well
2: yeah. there are a few yeah like yeah. in india especially you have crates and wolf snakes for example the people of you can confuse them there is one particular cat snake which is found across india it looks very much like a saw scaled wiper so and then russell's oh, nice. wiper looks very much like for an inexperienced person it can be easily confused with a python which is non venomous okay yeah
1: when you talk about anti-venom when you say hey anti-venom is expensive what is the infrastructure like how do you get from identifying a venomous snake to getting its anti-venom and do people like herpetologists are they the ones who collect and you know develop anti-venoms or is that something that's done by another kind of expertise
2: okay so in India, I think Pune, there is an anti-venom protection center.
0: The Serum Institute of India in Pune is a manufacturer of immunological drugs, including anti-venoms and also vaccines. And okay.
2: anti-venom is often collected in the Irula Cooperative Society in okay. Chennai. That's the one I know. There could be more, but uh, I'm not the right person to answer that question. But then there are Irula tribes in Chennai, they do the venom extraction. Okay. Uh, but then that's being sent to a pharmaceutical company where they wow. produce the anti-venom and okay. it gets supplied to many places. So the herpetologist's role might be identifying a venomous snake or giving okay. an easy key to identify a venomous species from a okay. non-venomous species. So I'm not involved directly but I get a lot of pictures to identify for okay. snakes. Uh, hmm. And In Kerala, I don't remember exactly, but I'm connected with some of my friends who are connected to some doctors who formed a very good network, I think, for the past five, six years. And they share photographs and they also share clinical conditions like what and they have a record and what to do and from which area, what snake bite it could be. So, So information is gathered.
1: Actually, this is from a memory of mine because when uh, my mother used to, she used to live in Assam for a brief while near the dense jungles. Okay. Um, There was a lot of instances of obviously wildlife and humans interacting a lot. And I always used to wonder, hey, if somebody gets bitten, who do you call? Because the doctor may not know what to do. So that's Mm -hmm. very, I think that's very interesting that you have to be on call to identify a venomous species all the time. Yeah. I don't think anybody else really has that kind of expertise that a herpetologist would have when dealing with that kind of situation.
0: I also think it's really interesting how the local community is also involved in the anti-venom production process.
2: Yeah, so I don't know much like, but it's been there for like quite some time. I think since the eighties, they have been doing that as a cooperative society. Amazing.
0: So. God forbid that anyone's bitten by a venomous snake, but do you have any advice for what someone could do in a brief time before they reach the hospital to be given the anti-venom? Any uh, do's and don'ts.
2: And don'ts, okay, so maybe it's best to share the video which uh, crop Bank produced last year or two years ago and they constantly keep producing advices for uh, what to do and what not to do. I don't want to spell it out because I i don't want to pass on a wrong information. To yeah. spread.
1: Yeah. The video Dr. Deepak mentions says that there's no cure for snake bite other than antivenom. So you should head to a hospital as soon as possible and not bother with any kind of bloodletting or tourniquets or any other alternative
0: treatment. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's so many misconceptions surrounding all of this.
2: The most important thing is like, okay, most of the, in India at least, government hospitals should have stocks mm-hmm. more than private hospitals. Uh, okay. So I think it's okay. good to have uh, them taken to a government hospital as soon as wow. possible. That's and very interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's also good to have connections with the local snake rescuers sometimes so they have a better connection and they play an important role in saving lives in some parts of uh, India.
0: Yeah so I remember from my childhood one thing that I was taught was that if you're bit then you should almost wrap a tourniquet around your arm or wrap it really tightly but then I was in a webinar recently and was told that that's not the best <laughs> thing that you can do when you get yeah. bitten.
2: Yeah that's the big no is what most people advise and I think that the case also Basically the point being, so if at all the bite is proper and if it's not a dry bite.
0: A dry bite is just when a snake bites but doesn't inject any venom.
2: You yeah. basically stop the circulation, for example, in your hand and uh, the venom is going to react a lot in that particular region and it might be a case where people have to, the doctors have to amputate your hand or leg because it's uh, it's no, no use anymore.
0: Wow, well, that's a little scary. <laughs> yeah.
2: So you've been
1: involved in the description of so many new species and I think the latest one is the smithophis uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Arunachalensis. Arunachalensis, thank you. The species we are talking about is a beautiful snake from Arunachal Pradesh in the northeast of India. It's a lovely glossy black with a bright yellow underbelly which extends to a zigzag pattern. So could you tell us a little bit about the process from when you find a new species to formally describing it and giving it a
2: name that enters into the formal system. So I'll give smith of his example. As I mentioned earlier, the herpetology school, where there were friends or the herpetologists from across the country coming together. There are people from Northeast, Western Ghats, Himalayas. So we all had one thing in common in the evening. After the course is over, so we shared our photographs and we discussed like, oh, what could this be? What could that be? And okay. this was during my PhD, our PhD times. And, uh, we said, okay, this is probably different, but then we have to do a lot more work before we actually describe it. So it's a collective knowledge from various uh, collaborators and friends and researchers for Smith office or natural lenses. Abhijit, my friend, who is in WI now, so he found the species during his PhD field work. And we knew it was different, but then he did not collect the tissue sample at that time. So this is okay. way back, 2004, 5 But then we found other species in this genus, Smithophis, and we had DNA for that. So we did two different papers describing two different species, one from Western Ghats and one from Northeast. To get an understanding of this group first, after that only we could describe this species which was lying there to be described for so many years. So it takes time and collaboration is key uh, because there are some species, some of the areas where the species is found might be like completely built up now. Like there are type localities in Chennai, there are type localities in the heart of Calcutta where you don't see any forest anymore, any snakes anymore. But then since we have a colonial history historically european museum collections have kept some of the specimen collected from those localities thankfully okay. some have precise locality okay so if okay. if you want to really work do a proper work and describe a species you do have to look at museum specimens and see how they are matching with what you newly acquired in a field like how different they are and how uh, similar they are and then Yeah, the whole process goes. It takes time, but with collective effort, I guess it takes less time to describe a species.
0: And That's really fascinating because I'm sure when people think of finding new species, the only thing they probably think about is just going into the deep, dense forests and doing extensive fieldwork for a long time. But then a huge part of it is also carefully browsing through all of the museum collections hoping to find the correct specimen that you're looking for.
2: So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, so apart from museum collection, another thing came up in my mind is like, okay, since the whole process of description has been going since the 1800s or early 1700s, uh, there are many herpetologists who have described species from Asia and really obscure literatures, which will okay. be in old German or old Russian There are cases where people go ahead, they got a specimen, oh, we sequenced it. This is A, is different from B, so we describe it as a new species. And then Mm there are some really serious European herpetologists who have all this literature piled up somewhere. So they go back and then they check and then they say, sorry, that's not a new species. (laughs) Someone described this 150 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) You just didn't do your homework properly.
0: (laughs) Very important to be thorough. yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, How do you
1: decide on a name for a species? Does it depend on who spots it first? Does it depend on the group? And uh, will we ever see a species named Deepak?
2: Okay, so for the first question, so if you are an author, according to the ICZN, International Code for Zoological Nomenclature, you have the privilege to naming a species whatever or whomever you want. Like it could be a place, it could be a person, or it could be a character. I usually prefer naming a species after a unique character on that animal because it's really handy when someone goes in field, found a species A, and then you look for that character and you know, okay, that species is this. So it's easier, but it's not as easy all the time because many of them have similar characters, so you can miss species A with B. So the next thing I do is like describe them after the place. Uh like the locality type like. look at. So that's another thing which many scientists do as well. The third thing is I really love naming it after local names. There might be some names generally for lizards, agamed okay. lizards or a particular snake. So the local people have some names. So I try to dig a little bit, ask the uh, natives like go okay, what you okay. call. So you can give that also as a name for that species, which connects okay. to the landscape and you know, people. So, which is nice. So there are two interesting books. There's one book called Naming of the Shrew by this guy called John (laughs) Wright for casual readers. It's very, very fun, a fun read. And the second book for researchers, it's a more in-depth scientific reading would be, I would suggest Describing Species, Practical Taxonomic Procedure for Biologists by Judith Winston. Yeah. Uh,
1: about the second part of my question, doctor, are you ever gonna <laughs> name a species? Uh,
2: I know I would, if I had the opportunity, I definitely would do that. <laughs> so, uh, like it's, it's, people are actually fraud upon you if you name a species after <laughs> yourself. And ah. I'm not a big fan as well, like unless somebody has done some big accomplishment to okay. say some person who has facilitated research in this field for many, many years. Okay. Or studied one group of animals for a very long time but then it varies now like people name can name anything after anyone so maybe someone will name something after me sometime i don't know
0: uh, we all hope for that yes definitely you mentioned naming some of the species after the local names i think that's a really lovely way to get the locals involved in species descriptions do you tell us a little more about how the locals and these reptiles interact because i'm sure Many might be knowing about the species for some time before they're actually formally described.
2: Oh yeah, so, cane turtle, for example, is like sure. the most elusive species. Mm-hmm. So it was described in 1912 by Henderson, one of the British officials in that forest area at that time. So, he described it from this place in Kerala, in a forest called Kavalai. There are many tribes who live in the forest and they have a very long history in that landscape. Nice. They know that species on the back of the head because they are very colourful species. In one particular part of the forest there are these tribes called carders and it's recorded properly and all that. They often bring these turtles when they go on local forests in the forest, they pick them up and they bring it home and give it to their kids to play. Wow. So, <laughs> so they know the species and in other areas there are people. Like India, you have nomadic tribes and across the country. There are so many hunter tribes. They know, when I was growing up in Chennai, they used to come hunting cats in the streets. But they are often seasonal bird hunters. So they go trap birds in the wetlands. They know for each of the species they were mm-hmm. hunting. In some places where people have lived in that landscape for a very long time, they, ha- they know the species which they come across day to day.
1: Okay.
0: Amazing.
1: So you mentioned, compared to your childhood, there's a difference because of urbanization and development. Certain snake species have disappeared and now you have to look at the old records to confirm them. So do you think that is a pattern that is happening around the country, like the urbanization is driving away new species or undiscovered species? It's
2: uh, hard to tell. Like empirical evidence, what we have is like, okay, there are some areas where I used to visit bird watching when I was like in college. And I know that it's surrounded by buildings now. I used to see so many pelicans and so on, but now it's like completely concrete structures. But then there's this tiny wetland left. These are species which we already knew, large birds, large mammals or or so on. So uh, people have some memory left of them. Oh, that animal was there. Black was, was there in this area. Cheetahs were mm-hmm. there in this area. So you, so people will know. But then small animals, nobody really bothers, right? So right. they don't even know that something like that existed unless it is of some relevance like a cobra. They'll say, oh, yeah, there used to be cobra in this area. Not anymore. I have a feeling that there are some areas in the country where there could be species which have disappeared even before we could formally describe to science. But then it, you can't generalize it for the whole country, but there could be pockets in which this is, this has happened. It, it's very, very much possible. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm sure that taxonomy and describing new species in that way can really help conservation.
2: One of the things, the third project I did was directly linked with conservation because one of my thesis chapters was a conservation action plan for the the Travancore tortoise. And then we also did one for cane turtles. So we had two conservation action plans submitted to the forest department to take some initiative how to protect these species or make sure of their long-term survival. But later research I did is largely systematics and taxonomy. Although it's not directly conservation, One thing to remember is by describing and popularizing diversity to mainstream media and general public, you're making more awareness about an area and the importance of an area and the diversity in that area. So that way, it does connect a little bit. But then we also provide locality information, whatever is available at that time to us. And I also contribute to the IUCN assessments, which happen every four or five years. So, they make broader conservation action plans for a species. So, if it's a range-restricted species, if it's a point endemic, and uh, area is also threatened.
0: The IUCN here is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. When Deepak mentions a point endemic, he's talking about species which consist of a single population found at that location alone.
2: So, these are like couple of criteria they use many other criteria but these are the most important ones and then they put them under a threatened category but if it is a species which is found across dry areas of Maharashtra for example or West Bengal then we know that okay it is widespread and there are construction happening everywhere but then it's so widespread and the population is not very low it's high density species so they will be okay for some time so I see yeah.
1: This might be a little cliche question, but the pandemic. Huh. <laughs> how, how has it, I know, how has it, uh, has it changed the way you work? Has it changed any of your plans for field work?
2: Yeah. So <laughs> sorry for the yeah. down
0: end. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's okay. But like everyone else, these the, days it's filled with uncertainties and you can't really plan field work or travel to museums. Uh, okay. It's very frustrating. However, on the bright side, I got plenty of time inside the house. So mm-hmm. put, and we managed to pull together many manuscripts which were pending okay. for a long time. Otherwise, okay. I would be traveling and getting more information while this might be moving in a slower pace. So okay. collectively collaborators back in India and here, everyone is under lockdown and be like, okay, let's try and finish at least few of the manuscripts. So uh, we have to finish. I also get plenty of reviews during the
1: Okay. pandemic,
2: lot of requests. So it often, some of them I turned down, but more often I'm like, I haven't reviewed it. So it keeps me busy.
0: Another slightly more cliche question. What would you say would be most rewarding and also the most annoying parts of the research process?
2: Okay, so the most annoying one is sometimes months or a couple of years we get convinced that uh, we have identified one character to describe species morphologically So, like if it's a cryptic species especially then you're like oh great we found this and then one day you request someone uh, who's in a museum elsewhere a collaborator mm-hmm. or a friend or a curator please check this character and they send you photos and uh, it breaks down that pattern After oh time, no it's <laughs> so, like you should have described this, and then we have to start it with the clean to go back to other characters like oh yeah
0: so,
2: so that is the annoying part Rewarding part is when, uh, in an academic perspective, when senior academic or established scientists, they are appreciating your work, then it's good. And sometimes, because of uh, charismatic species, some areas get protection. Uh, so you popularize, you describe a species from like a last remnant forest patch, for example, somewhere in India or other country, and then you popularize it in media. And some local initiative happens, like a forest officer gets interested and he says, oh, okay, I'm going to give better protection to this landscape. So that's really, really rewarding because it's like happening. Okay.
1: Uh, Could you elaborate? What role does the
2: forest service play in relation to the work you do? Basically, thanks to them for all the work we do, I guess, as being one of the most populous countries it's really hard to manage forest areas because there's a lot of okay. for natural resources uh, yeah. be it, uh, animal grazing or small time lopping of forest strength is small they are, there are really dedicated officers across the country and they're doing a really good job in protecting these like some people they might be thinking oh it's a really small patch of forest like why does it matter but no that's the only okay. big remnant in that particular landscape and if people okay. are Like the officers are taking initiative it makes a huge difference. Okay.
1: Do you have a favorite species that you like to observe or I'm sure one of the ones you must have discovered also must be close to your heart.
2: I don't know. Like earlier I used to have my favorite. I often say like King Cobra is my favorite. Okay. Uh, But I've seen only a few in the Western Guard. And they are often not very aggressive. Yeah. But then they are big and they're charismatic and in some areas people hear them at the same time it's not like they're ready to go and attack like hack them and they just stand and watch them so that's like my all-time favorite species in the western guard i wouldn't say the same for the ones in Orissa or or bengal because they are really aggressive is what some of my herpetologist friends in that region say. (laughs) because they, they are in the drier area Okay. And uh, also they occur in grasslands in some bits, forests yes. and grasslands. Apparently they can raise their hood much higher, they are more agile, okay. That's very very cool. Wow. it's cool, but yeah.
0: So much of your work has been focused on Indian reptiles throughout yeah. the country, yeah. but from my understanding you have worked in other countries as well. I was wondering what your favorite place to work would be so far and if there was anything that makes Indian ecosystem special.
2: So, I've done herping in deserts of Egypt. I've uh-huh. done a little bit yeah. of herping in uh, lowland rainforest in West Africa. It's a uh-huh. very short time, but yeah, I still managed to do that. And few short trips in the uh, U.S., in Florida for some time, and outskirts of D.C. But then, each of these areas were special in their own way, because they had their Absolutely. unique set of uh, species. Yeah. And India is very special, because you get everything in one plateau. You get absolutely stunning rainforests in biodiversity hotspots in the western and northeast. You get the deserts in Rajasthan, Jaisalmer, that area. You get savanna grassland forests across peninsular India. Although not all of them are intact, but there are some bits which are really nice. And then you have the temperate region in the Himalayas. So you get them all there if you want to do field work. But my favorite one, of course, is always the Western Ghats. Particularly, I love the Southern Western Ghats and the drier Plains adjoining the, the rain-shadowed areas. They're really beautiful landscapes. And it's also a culturally yeah. diverse region, plus the yeah. food is great. So <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: always a big plus. Yeah. So yeah. now, one final question. If you had any advice for people who are aspiring to be herpetologists or people who are starting off their careers,
2: one of the things I would always jump for an opportunity if there is a course happening conducted by eminent herpetologist anywhere in the country, then okay. I would sign up for it and then try to learn Okay. first. So that is one. And also there's so much systems to study across India. And there's herpetology, as you know, is like a huge, it encompasses so many subject areas. So it's not just taxonomy and describing species. There's more to herpetology than just that. So, and India is like a great place to study herbs. So you can pick one of the areas I mentioned. You go to the Ghats or you go to the deserts, you pick it. But then there's so much subjects you can study, not just uh, taxonomy and uh, describing species. So that's, that's one of the things. I-
0: okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I have learned a huge amount from you today and that was extremely fun.
2: You're welcome, and I'm really happy to uh, talk about herbs, and especially Indian herbs.
0: I wish and you much you. success with any of the research that and you're doing. And you. All right. Bye, Lipak. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye,
2: doctor. Bye. Bye.
0: Well, that was incredible. Um, I want to go out and look for some snakes now. Yeah, I can't wait until I can teach my children to catch snakes. When they're three years old. Yes. Yeah, please, we welcome all kinds of feedback. And thank you for listening. For pictures of all the snakes, reptiles, and other fun animals that Deepak talked about, as well as some more detailed information about them, with relevant references, head over to the description. Also, a huge, huge thanks to Dr. Natalie Cooper at the NHM for coming up with the idea for this whole thing. We cannot thank you enough. Also, to keep up with Dr. Veerappan, learn more about his research and see some extremely cool photos of reptiles and amphibians, follow him on Twitter at Deepak Veerappan and on Instagram at Acuto Yes, that is a kind of snake. See you soon.